Physics World. Hello, and welcome to the Physics World Weekly Podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. In this episode, we'll look at the physics of some of our favorite holiday activities. We'll also talk about a new brain interface that converts thoughts into actions and discover what Saturn's oscillating rings tell us about the interior of the planet. But first, a word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society, or ECS, which is official publishing partner of the Institute of Physics and Physics World. Would you like to expand your understanding of electrochemical research? Starting in September, the ECS will offer a virtual short course series designed for people who want to gain a better understanding of electrochemical methods and research. Topics include fundamentals of electrochemistry, lithium-ion battery safety, advanced impedance spectroscopy, and electrochemical capacitor technology. Students receive significant short course registration discounts. For more information or to register, please visit www.electrochem.org forward slash education and click short course to learn more. I don't think that I need to convince listeners of this podcast that there's a little bit of physics in just about everything in life. And summer holidays are no exception. The August issue of Physics World is full of vacation-themed articles put together by my colleague Tushna Commissariat, who joins me down the line. Hi, Tushna. Hi, Hamish. So, Tushna, in in the August issue, you have four mini-articles that highlight the physics involved in some holiday activities. Now, the first one answers a very difficult question. What's the best way to chill that warm bottle or can of your favorite beverage to the right temperature to enjoy on a hot day. And it turns out, perhaps not surprisingly, that two physicists, I think they're in Poland, have done the hard work and created a calculator. So, so how does this calculator work, Tushna? Absolutely, Hamish. So yeah, like you said, there's nothing sort of more annoying when you're on holiday or, or if it's just a really hot summer day and you realize that all the cold drinks in the fridge uh, have now magically disappeared, been consumed. And, uh, you know, you've got that hot bottle of <laughs> wine or juice sitting out on the counter. And so these uh, very kind physicists have set up what they call the chilled drinks calculator. And it uses pretty basic physics, right? They've basically just used Newton's law of cooling. And, and built an online calculator based on that, um, you know, using the coefficient of cooling and, you know, a few, few, few key parameters such as the temperature of the object at any given time. So what's the temperature of your drink when you put it in? The ambient temperature, so how hot is it outside? Um, the temperature when you start out, the time spent cooling and K, the cooling efficient, coefficient. And they basically worked out that it doesn't matter what sort of drink it is, um, 
they can help you cool it. So the really cool part about the, the calculator Great is that pun. you can, <laughs> thank you. You can go in and you can say, all right, I've got, what kind of bottle is it? Is it plastic? Is it glass? Is it some, is it a tin maybe? So you can go in and put, put that in. Uh, you put in what it is that you're cooling. So they have all kinds of options for you, starting from water, soft drinks, juice and iced tea and iced coffee, wine, beer and spirits. So you choose the appropriate uh, liquid. Uh, and then you, you tell them where the drink was, you know, so uh, is it a hot summer's day? Is it a cloudy day? Is it at room temperature? Have you accidentally left a, the beer bottles in the boot of your black SUV for five hours? In Dubai. Uh, in Dubai, exactly. <laughs> Although maybe you might not have beer in Dubai. I'm not quite oh, sure about yes. the rules yeah. there. But no, okay. sorry, I, I digressed. Go ahead. <laughs> You might have a nice bottle of juice. Um, and then where you're putting the drink, i.e. what is your cooling method? Is it a freezer? I love that they have a wine cellar as an option for all those um, <laughs> posh folks with a wine cellar. Is it an ice bath? Are you just using ice and salt? Uh, is it something else? Are you using cold water? So there's options to customize. And then you say what temperature you'd like it at. Do you want it absolutely frozen? Do you want to just... You know just about nice and cool and so you put in these four or five options and then uh you you sort of hit enter and bing out comes this lovely little answer so it'll say something like if it's a bottle of water in plastic on a hot summer's day and it's in the freezer then it will take one hour and 17 minutes to cool your drink you know and it gives you like a nice little graph it throws up a graph of temperature and time uh and and sort of so you can plot along it and see if you if you go a little bit shorter on the time might be a bit warmer but you'd be all right with that and they have these like couple of sort of hacks on on how to chill stuff like you know using uh, salty ice water or putting the the old hack of putting wet paper towel around the bottle things like that so it's it's a really handy little device put together for you by your friendly physicists who yeah <laughs> I, I really enjoyed uh, looking at that, uh, and I think in the past I've, I've 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 had a play around on the calculator as well. And it's interesting that I had this very problem yesterday. I was sent out. Well, I was told that I had to go to the supermarket to buy some prosecco for a soiree that we were having, Ooh. and um, of course I kept putting it off and putting it off. And finally, <laughs> I went over to Tesco where I bought some warm Prosecco, and nobody likes warm Prosecco. No. And of course, I realized that I had left it too late to get that Prosecco chilled in the, uh, in the fridge. So I stuck it in the freezer. But of course, the minute I stuck it in the freezer, I started getting paranoid about you know, whether it was going to freeze and explode and there'd be frozen <laughs> fizz all over the f kitchen floor. And um, actually, I don't even know, would, would Prosecco freeze in a, in a typical home freezer? I, I, I don't know. So yeah, I really, uh, I should have remembered, uh, you know, that uh, this calculator was available. Um, it, it would have actually come in useful yesterday. So um, a, 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 as it turned out, the, the Prosecco was fine in the freezer and it, it oh, chilled okay. down nicely. So, nice. um, yeah, yeah, it, it, it was still a success. Um, so, Tushno, you've also got um, a mini article about sunscreen. Mm. Uh, so, so what's the physics behind a, a sunburn and, and how does sunscreen work? 
Well, yeah. So in the in the classic theme, as you said right at the start about physics literally being everywhere, you don't really. I mean, I don't know about you, but even I don't tend to think about photons when I'm lying on a nice deck chair on the beach. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but maybe I should. Maybe I should, um, because obviously, you know, the, the, it's it's in the name that when you get a sunburn or you know you're lying in the sun, uh, you are being bathed in a, in a in a sort of the warm glow of photons from the sun. And the, the key bit uh, that isn't good for us, you know, human beings, and, and I'm guessing also for lots of animals, uh, is that you have ultraviolet radiation from the sun and you have two forms. I think most of us know that it's UVA and UVB. Mm-hmm. And so UVA is about 320 to 400 nanometers. That's the range, the wavelength. And UVB is about 280 to 320 nanometers. And this is this ultraviolet radiation is what's actually absorbed by the molecules of our skin. Our skin can absorb these um, this, these photons. And what happens really is that if we don't have some kind of barrier on in the form of sunscreen, the energy that comes from these photons, as we know, photons, light is, is just energy, isn't it? Mm-hmm. And so the energy makes the molecules, um, it, it, it gets absorbed by the molecules of our skin. And that isn't good because it makes the molecules sort of mutate. They don't need that extra energy. They undergo different sorts of, um, you know, dangerous chemical reactions. And that mm-hmm. damages our skin. Um, and, you know, when we get the burn, that's because the molecules absorb this energy and and our body actually has an inflammatory response because it's not good for the body. So, you know, your skin gets inflamed quite literally. So what the sunscreen does is it has two, two, two bits to it. So it has a protective barrier that actually absorbs some of this energy directly so it doesn't actually make it all the way through and then the other aspect of it is that it has a reflective barrier so some of the photons get reflected away and so they just aren't absorbed at all and then some of the others that might be absorbed actually get absorbed and you have a little reaction with some of the elements in the sunscreen instead of the molecules in your skin Um, so you know really there's physics and chemistry and biology all at play when you're just, um, you know, lying on the beach. So, you know, wear sunscreen. Yes. I mean, I think sunscreen's an incredible thing. Um, you know, when you think about it, you, you sort of put it on your skin and, and you rub it in and it, it sort of disappears or mostly disappears. Yet um, it somehow manages to protect you from some some pretty nasty radiation from the sun. Um, you know, when you think, you know, other wavelengths of light, for example, visible light, it'll travel meters through water. And of course, it very easily comes through glass. Yet this tiny layer of, of sunscreen can protect you from uh, from UV. It's it, it, it's a real miracle and great for holidays because you can get out and about and uh, and not worry about getting a nasty sunburn. Indeed, yeah. You know, when I was working on this, I kind of looked up um, a little bit about sunscreen and I was interested to see that, you know, the first sort of version of it really came about by this, um, I think it was an Australian chemist and I think it was in the 30s. Um, so, you know, it's kind of, it's 
relatively new but then there was this like great throwaway comment in the wikipedia article which basically said that you know despite this version of sunscreen being relatively new um you know there's there's apparently like records of peoples as far back as the ancient egyptians who oh, right. used things like um rice bran and jasmine and and flowers and things to provide sun protection and i figured yeah if you you know if if you live in predominantly countries around the equator etc you know apart from shade <laughs> they must have they must have been putting something on their skin whether it was effectively cutting out uva and uvb i'm not sure but uh you know some form of sunscreen's been around we we, we don't like burning in the sun that's no sure. no <laughs> no not at all and um speaking of burning um next up is pizza and now, now I think that pizza is, is the perfect holiday food to have sitting, you know, while you're out on a terrace overlooking the Bay of Naples or, or really just about anywhere. And um, it turns out that the best pizzas are cooked in wood-fired brick ovens. And I'm guessing that there's probably some pretty interesting physics behind that. So, Tushna, why wood-fired brick ovens for pizza? Well, as as I'm sure you can imagine, um, this is where, you know, fundamental thermodynamic principles, you know, are key to any forms of cooking, aren't they, really? They really mm -hmm. are. And it's no different when it comes to pizza. And like you just mentioned, Hamish, uh, it really does, there is that amazingly different taste you get of whatever kind of pizza you might be having if it's cooked in one of those brick ovens, you know, it just tastes better, the sort of base is extra crispy and chewy and, 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 you know, your toppings are perfectly blistered. And as you mentioned, they are, you know, best consumed in Italy, if you ask me. <laughs> um, and what happened? So, uh, as, as, as you can imagine, again, some physicists got involved. There were physicists in Rome and, and they thought what we're going to do is go around and eat lots of pizza across Rome and talk to all the, you know, traditional pizzaiolas. Um, these are the, the, the pizza makers of Italy mm -hmm. and sort of talk to them about what they do and what works and what doesn't and why they do why they do it that way and 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 then these um, physicists wrote a paper so these brick ovens so they have brick on the base and then they have a dome shape almost like an igloo um all made out of brick and so what they found was the secret is this amazing balance of oven temperature and time so you need exactly in these Italian brick ovens you need two minutes to cook your pizza just two and minutes two minutes exactly and it's at a whopping 330 degrees celsius wow that's the heat in there but but if if you try to do this in anything that's not um, one of these ovens, you would you would end up with one of two situations. You'd either have your base burnt to a crisp uh, if the toppings are cooked, or you would have your toppings uncooked and, 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 and sort of, you know, the cheese unmelted and, and your pastrami not cooked at all uh, if, if your base was just right. So what happens in these brick ovens is that the bricks at the base of it heat to about a perfect 208 degrees. That's the base temperature of the right. bricks. And then you have conductive radiation that comes through the dome shape that cooks your toppings really quickly because it's a vaulted ceiling in these oh, ovens. Okay. So if you try to do the same thing in your you know, steel oven at home, you just have completely burnt dough, 
or completely undercooked toppings and which is why we can't really recreate even if you you know because you can try with a pizza stone and things like that but it's just not going to taste quite right so you know if you can take yourself out to somewhere that at least has an old school italian style vaulted brick pizza oven for the perfect crust Right. And now I, I, you can buy pizza ovens, can't you? Wood-fired pizza ovens that mm, you, can, yes. you can set up in your backyard. A friend of ours has one. And uh, apparently his is, um, he doesn't put, um, you know, logs in. Mm. Um, he puts uh, wood pellets in. Ooh. And I think, I think, I could be wrong. I think these are the the same wood pellets that are used, um, you know, in power stations, you know, where they burn wood pellets to create steam and then create electricity. Um, So, you know, maybe this is sort of a byproduct of all these wood pellets hanging around. (laughs) But, um, but yeah, yeah, apparently it makes very good pizza. I haven't, uh, I haven't tried any. But uh, yeah, that's really interesting. I have to keep it. I have to think about that because I do. I do like to make a homemade pizza occasionally. Yes, and, absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll try to keep in mind, you know, keeping the the base a bit cooler mm. somehow than than the uh, than the toppings, and see if I can get that. I can get that perfect pizza. Well, maybe for the sake of, you know, physics experimentation, Hamish, you'll have to get a stone oven in your backyard and then <laughs> do some some testing, you know, at the same time in your oven in the kitchen and one in the backyard. <laughs> controlled, controlled experiments. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I, I could definitely go for that. And and the last sort of physics related holiday activity um, that you've covered, Tushna, is surfing. You've mm. got a, a mini article um, that's illustrated by one of those unbelievably tall waves that can be found in Portugal at the uh, at the coastal town of Nazaré. I think I'm I'm pronouncing that right, but apologies to any Portuguese speakers um, out there. And and off the coast of that town, some waves can reach uh, an unbelievable 30 meters in height. And you know, just just you, you think of how much energy would be required to pile up water thirty meters in height. That's that that's just incredible. How, how do those waves get so tall? Well, Nazare um, has a very special local geology that makes these crazy waves form, uh, as you say. And you know, just just for listeners who like me might not be able to quite realize how tall 30 meters is vertically that's about 10 stories a 10 story building is what you're imagining those kind of waves so what Nazareth has is it has a massive underwater sea canyon so just off the coast you have this huge canyon and it extends 5,000 meters deep and 230 kilometers along so because it has this huge underwater sea current, you can imagine that there's, you know, there's this huge canyon and then you have all the local currents and things like that. So basically the waves sort of pile up and pile up and pile up in the canyon bit. And then when they sort of slam into the coast, you have these humongous swells that just keep building and building and building. So they are apparently the most popular ones for, you know, the big wave surfers. I used to think that that was somewhere in in in, in Hawaii or something like that. But it turns out the real hotspot is in this tiny coastal village in, in, in Portugal. And if you are a surfer, and if you 
you really want to go and catch one of those massive waves, then apparently the best time of year is between October and March. And that's when the waves are at their wildest. So if that's your if that's your um, holiday idea. Wow. Well, I have to say, I did, I did try surfing once. It was a few years ago in Croyd, which is, uh, you know, it's not too far from here, in, from, from Bristol. Mm. It's on the north coast of Devon. And uh, I have to say the waves weren't that tall. <laughs> um, I'd say they weren't even three meters, let alone 30 meters. But, you know, there were waves and people were surfing. And um, I went there uh, and, and I took a, a surfing lesson. I think it was an hour long. And I just tried and tried and tried to get up on that board you know, really did my did my best to do it. And it just wasn't working. (laughs) And then after after it was really depressing and, you know, driven out there to try it. And uh, and and then an hour was up and the instructor said, oh, you know, come on in. And I thought, oh, one last try. And I did it. You know, I couldn't believe it. There I was, you know, up on the surfboard, you know, sort of slowly going into the beach. And it, I mean, it was just the most amazing feeling it was a bit you know a bit like the feeling um you know when you first drive a car or when you first ride a bike you know this sort of uh, this motion that you know seems a bit odd but uh you know you've you've sort of almost got under control so um that that was great i mean i'm sure there's a lots lots of physics involved in you know how to catch a wave how to get up on a surfboard properly and i wasn't doing any of it but um, yeah, it was um, it, it, it was a great experience. Something I'll uh, I'll never forget, and I can really understand, you know, just from that one experience, how people um, really get hooked on it. So yeah, thanks, Tushna. Thanks for 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 highlighting those articles. And I should point out that that's not all we have in the August issue of Physics World about holidays. There's a fascinating feature about the physics of sandcastles. And there's also an article that looks at how physicists take or sometimes don't take their holidays. And and finally, uh, we look at summer internships, um, which, you know, I suppose that could be a great working holiday. Uh, Tushna, have you ever done a, a summer internship? I have Hamish, yeah, yeah. I've done a, I've done a couple, um, and one was um, during my masters, during my science journalism masters, and it was in Italy for three months. So that oh, wow. was the ultimate summer. Hence <laughs> your interest in pizza. Exactly, yes, and it was amazing because it's in this um, the you know ICTP, the International Center for Theoretical Physics, up in Trieste, and it was amazing to see that all of these physicists would be like in board shorts and flip flops in their offices, and you know people would be like, "Shall we have like a little bit of pizza on the beach and and discuss this scientific problem?" So everyone really took to the beach life there. I'll say that it was oh, great. That sounds- that sounds great. Yeah, I've I, I only did one summer internship. It was um, w- when I was an undergraduate, and um, I managed to get a job um, working for a professor at the University of Guelph, where I was. Um, I managed to get a job working at um, Atomic Energy of Canada, their um, neutron scattering uh, nuclear reactor, and um, and so I went up there for for a few months and um, I got to go in, you know, into the reactor every day and set the experiment up and and get the data. And, you know, it's just absolutely fantastic. It was very, you know, it was very old school. You know, this would have been in the in the late 80s. So I suppose 
the security, you know, the, 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 I shouldn't say the security was a bit lax, but yeah, I think it was the, uh, you know, the, the, the whole lab was very secure. You had to show your pass to get in, but once you were, you know, inside the lab, uh, you could just walk, you know, in, into the back door of the nuclear reactor. No, nobody well. went around. Nobody went around <laughs> the front. Everybody sort of went in this back door that was propped open um, into the reactor. I'm uh, kind of disturbed that a nuclear reactor even has a back door. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure. Well, that 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 reactor is. I don't think it's running anymore. Um, it was called NRU. It's sort of a very famous um, uh, research reactor. But um, yeah, that was, yeah, the back door. And the other great thing about, I mean, I could get this wrong. Apologies to uh, nu nu um, nuclear scientists out there. But apparently this reactor, they, they could refuel it on the go. So oh, what, wow. they, what they used to do is they have this big crane that would go over the reactor. It would pull out one of the fuel rods and, um, and then put in a new fuel rod. And when they pulled out the fuel rod, that everything would go haywire because all the, you know, clacks and alarms, radiation alarms would go crazy. And, yeah. you know, we, we were in there when this happened, right? And so <laughs> you're in there, you're in there, all, this crane goes, rah, 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 and then all of a sudden these klaxons go off. And, you know, of course, you look terrified. What's going on? And, you know, the people you're working with say, oh, yeah, don't worry about it. They're just, uh, they're just changing the fuel. <laughs> have you so had that... your radiation levels checked, Hamish? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, I did have my badge. And uh, I mean, I have to say it was a lovely place to spend the summer because it's mm. up um, it's up sort of on the edge of the Canadian wilderness. It's on the Ottawa River. Oh. Um, about so It must be about 200 kilometers upstream from, from Ottawa, very close to Algonquin Park, which is a sort of famous wilderness park in Canada. So, um, you know, I could go out on my mountain bike and go into the, into the woods on the, on the fire roads and, you know, just sort of disappear for, for hours. Uh, it was, it was fantastic. So yeah, internships, if you're, if you're an early career physicist or a student, definitely see if you can nail one either in, uh, in Italy or, uh, even Chalk River in, uh, in Canada. Yeah. Well, that's great, Tushin. I think you're you're on holiday next week, so um, or this week, as as the podcast will go out. So I hope you enjoy yourself, and thanks for being uh, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Hamish. It's been great as usual. Now I'm joined by my colleague Tammy Freeman to chat about what else is new on the Physics World website. Hi, Tammy. Hi, Hamish. Now, Tammy, in, in an article published today uh, on Physics World, we describe a brain-machine interface that can turn thoughts into actions. Now, wow, that, <laughs> that sounds a bit like science fiction or telekinesis. What, what is this device actually used for? Okay, so a brain-machine interface. It's basically a system that detects signals from a person's brain and translates the measured neural activity into commands that can control external software or hardware. Um, the main application of these devices is to improve the quality of life for people with motor dysfunction or paralysis, or even those with locked-in syndrome, where you're fully conscious but unable to move or communicate. So detecting the brain signals could enable the user to imagine an action and then wirelessly control, say, 
a wheelchair or a robotic arm. Now, in this latest study, a research team headed up at Georgia Tech in the US has developed soft scalp electronics to create a wearable brain machine interface. And so how, how does their new device work? Uh, I mean, I mean, it sounds like is it some sort of helmet that someone would wear on their head? Is that is that how soft scalp electronics works? Yeah. So currently the main technique used for non-invasive detection of brain activity is electroencephalography or EEG. So these are the head caps you've probably seen. They look a bit like swimming hats and they've got lots of electrodes with lots of wires coming off attached to external equipment. And the problem with these current systems is that these caps can be bulky, heavy and uncomfortable. They also require messy gels to maintain skin contact and they have long setup times. So instead, in this work, the researchers have developed a portable EEG system that's soft and comfortable to wear and doesn't have any wires. And they've done this by using an array of flexible micro needles, which act as an electrode to detect the brain signals. These signals are then fed through a stretchable connector into a wireless circuit that processes the inputs in real time. Now, the microneedles are gold-plated, so they're biocompatible and they're perfectly safe to use. And the researchers found that the array provided excellent contact with the scalp, and it was also highly durable to bending and being repeatedly inserted into skin. And so, and so is, is the idea here that, that somebody would, would wear this sort of continuously? It wouldn't be a, 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 you know, something that they would wear j- just occasionally. Is, is that why it has to be durable? uh, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you've got this on your head and it's not it's not really heavy and you could just wear it whenever you needed to control something and it wouldn't you know, it wouldn't be too invasive. And so have they tested this system um, in people yet? Yes. So they've studied the system with four volunteers, although they haven't used it with disabled individuals yet. And what they did was to test the device's ability to classify brain signals They combined it with a virtual reality video game and a machine learning algorithm. So in the game, the subjects, they had to respond to visual cues by imagining motor actions, such as grasping with their left or right hand, for example. The brain machine interface recorded their neural activity, and then the machine learning algorithm interpreted these signals to determine the subject's intended tasks. Now, the researchers found that their system could do this with a high accuracy of 93%. And basically, this allowed the volunteers to have real-time wireless control of the game just using their thoughts. Wow, that that, that sounds fantastic. Um, Where can you read more about this research? Um, The article is on the Physics World website. It's called Brain Machine Interface Turns Thoughts into Actions, and it's written by Dan O'Brien. Now, Hamish, we also have a research update that describes how Saturn's rings have been used to probe the interior of the planet. How was that done? Well, yeah, th- this is an interesting one. It, it, it's a story about ringing rings. These, you know, Saturn has these famous rings uh, that surround it. And, and it turns out that these rings sort of oscillate, you know, a bit like a, maybe like a guitar string at, at many different frequencies. And... Um, 
our understanding of, of, of this ringing comes from NASA's Cassini spacecraft, which observed Saturn for 13 years before plunging into the gas giant in 2017. And during that time, the mission acquired a wealth of data about the planet's famous rings. Now, Christopher Mankiewicz and Jim Fuller at Caltech have used this data to determine how the rings oscillate, and they were very surprised with what they found. So the rings told them something about the interior of the planet. Yeah, that's right. Even though these, you know, these rings, I think that the particular rings that they looked at are tens of thousands of kilometers away from the surface of Saturn, they did uh, say something about the planet and, and in particular about the, the seismological waves that cause Saturn to oscillate. And, you know, Saturn is a huge planet, and so any oscillation corresponds to the motion of lots of lots of matter. And that affects the gravity that's experienced by the rings. And so the upshot is that the rings oscillate in dozens of different ways. And the researchers have sort of linked this back to what's going on inside the planet. Okay, so what did it tell them about the core of the planet? Well, after characterizing the motion of the rings, they, they worked back to see what types of planetary core could cause the observed oscillations. And much to their surprise, they found that the motion of the rings is most likely to be caused by a core that's larger and much more diffuse than previously thought. Hmm, so what does this core look like? Well... Up until now, scientists had thought that Saturn's core was rocky and, and that it was confined to the inner 10 or 20% of the planet. But Mankiewicz and Fuller have concluded that the core stretches out to about 60% of the radius. So that's huge. That's much, much bigger than previously thought. And what's more, the core appears to be rock, ice, and fluid even at the center of the planet. So it's not, it's not as solid as, um, as scientists had previously thought. And the, the other thing is that the, the core seems to change gradually. The, the, there's no abrupt um, uh, marker where it ends. So the, the fluid content of the, of the core appears to increase gradually as, uh, as you move away from the center. And this sort of messy structure with no sort of neat boundaries also came as another big surprise. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting. So where can you find more about Saturn's wobbling rings? Well, just look for the article, Saturn's rings oscillate to the tune of its large and messy core. That's on the Physics World website. And that was written by Rob Lee. Thanks for being on the podcast, Tammy. Thanks, Hamish. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast, which is sponsored by the Electrochemical Society. Thanks to Tushna Commissariat and Tammy Freeman for joining me today. And a special thanks to James Dacey, who is our producer this week. We will be back again soon, but in the meantime, do listen to the Physics World Stories podcast. 
It's called Deflecting Asteroids and Exploring a Metal World, and it features two scientists who are involved in robotic missions to asteroids. You can find all the stories podcasts on the Physics World website or on your favorite podcast app. Physics World.